This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And this will be our last meeting until 2020. So we will be here together for the entire hour. So we have time to discuss the happenings of the last week, let alone the last year. And of course, we will also take your call. Don't worry, you will be able to get a word in edgewise. The numbers to call 416 360 0740, toll free 1 866 740 Now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everybody. Hi, how are you? Hello there. Hello. Hello. It's getting festive. Now, this is the first time that we're talking since Andrew Scheer stepped down last Thursday. I still have a lot of unanswered questions. As you heard in Bob's News, a new Angus Reid poll has 50% of respondents blaming Andrew Scheer for the election loss, and a majority of both committed conservatives and people who might vote that way saying that they would favor Ronna Ambrose as the new leader. So let's start there. Is that fair to blame Andrew Scheer? Well, you know, after any election, um, if you lose, the, uh, the, the the leader obviously gets to blame, gets to blame. The, the buck stops at the top, as they say, when it comes to uh, campaigns. But I think in this one, and we've talked about this before on the show, Libby, and that is, you know, um, Andrew had uh, high expectations. You know, four years ago, plus it, when when Justin Trudeau became prime minister, there was not a conservative who didn't think that, oh, my God, he's going to be in there for two terms uh, in some ways because of the, the Trudeau mania and the fact that he had so much, you know, popularity and, and not only here but internationally. So there's a lot of folks who thought, you know, this, this is going to be at least a two-term uh, prime minister. And when we went to to our leadership contest two years after that, when we picked Andrew Scheer, even then there was some thinking that might be at least a two-election, uh, uh, you know, strategy to get our, our leader as, pri- as prime minister. But it wasn't until after that when NCC Lavalin started happening, his international foibles started taking taking you know center stage, where people started believing. Wait a second, this might be a time for us to win this election this time around in twenty in the election that just happened. Um, so the expectations started getting higher, and then during the campaign, expectations got even higher with respect to some of the scandals that we saw with, with blackface and, and other issues. And and the party itself, I think, even talked about themselves winning more seats. And then when it didn't happen, the expectation bar was so high that, that the failure was, was too good and too great. And a lot of folks just felt that we lost our opportunity, hence the fact that people left um, feeling that, that Andrew Scheer was, uh, was not the right leader to take us into the next election. And, and now here we are. He, he's, he stepped down and he's resigning. Uh, and we've got a leadership contest that's underway. And of course, the, the two names that I keep hearing all the time, and my phone's never been st- hasn't stopped since this thing, uh, is Ronna Ambrose and, and Peter McKay, the two, but also Aaron O'Toole, who I like yeah. and is a friend of mine, and I've known him for some time, is somebody to uh, to consider quite seriously as well. Uh, Andrew Shear, is it just, I mean, the Conservatives did increase their vote count, and Karen, you were saying mm-hmm. they, they might get into a whole heap of trouble if they dump him, 
But I guess uh, the consensus he that he couldn't win in Ontario and certainly not in Quebec, and partly his social conservatism that he was so kind of uh, wishy-washy, mm-hmm. not really coming out about. Well, you know, it's it's um, of course as a leader, he's got to bear responsibility for the outcome of the election. I think that's fair to say. Um, it, you know, we've talked about this on the panel. It's hard when you're running for a job that you've never had before in full public view, and when you make mistakes, there's no, there's very little room to recover and continue to move on. So, um, you know, I, I think that there was that moment where the conservatives saw a victory, and then it slipped away from them. And of course, there's resentment towards that. And I think. Andrew Scheer was in a position where he had to resign because, um, you know, the, 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 the school issue was raising its head, I'm sure, like they were going to explore every parking ticket he ever had. And, you know, it was just going to be miserable for him to stay in that role. So he, he decided to resign so that the party could move on. But now it's, the party's embroiled itself in a new mm. <laughs> scandal. And so it's just, um, I, I still question the wisdom of whether or not this was the right time to be making that change. Uh, Charles, was it people are saying uh, he was too socially conservative, uh, he, he, you know, didn't, his stand on LGBTQ was the factor, and then what, what about this whole school funding thing? I'm, I have to say that I, I fail to understand that. But. Well, the, the timing of it was, was most unusual, and it appears that Mr. Shear's resignation came in the immediate aftermath of that story breaking among senior conservatives. Um, there's a lot about this story that's really, really unusual. Let me let me just say, I, as I've said on your program, Libby, on a number of occasions, prophecy is a lousy way to make a living. But I did say that Andrew Shearer was going down like a submarine about three weeks ago. <laughs> you did. You did. Um, and, but, you know, I hope this isn't too conspiratorial, but it, it's hard not to think that the, the fine hand of Stephen Harper isn't involved in a lot of this, given the number of senior Harper people who were first out of the gate to say that Shear had to go and that he had to go before April. Uh, Mr. Harper's chair of the, the PC Canada Fund, which is their major fundraising arm. Um, which ultimately was responsible for the leak of the fact that some of Andrew Shearer's children's education was being subsidized. Um, and part of me wonders if, if we might actually see Stephen Harper reemerge as a potential leader of the Conservative Party really? of Canada, as untenable uh, as that seems. Uh, if that doesn't happen, um, I will say, and again, prophecy, lousy <laughs> way to make a living, the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada will be Pierre Poilievre. <laughs> Um, and I say that because um, for for two reasons. One, um, the two tasks of any leadership candidate going into this race will be who hates Justin Trudeau the most and who can, <laughs> and who can act most like Stephen Harper. And, um, uh, and who old, speaks good old, French. And old Pete has both of those down, not to mention the fact that he's fluently bilingual. My my good friend Charles Stickwell, he was ahead on prophecy. He did get the... He did get the um, the one right about the leader leaving before the convention, but no, I don't. I don't think um, uh, Stephen Harper has got anything to do with this. Quite frankly, he, Stephen Harper actually quite liked Andrew Shear, um, and uh, and Andrew Shear, you know, always said that he was just the smiley smiley face of Stephen Harper. Okay, but but the published reports and they're not attributed say that it was Stephen Harper who had a fit about. Andrew Shear getting the subsidies for his kids' education. Livid, and the livid. Quest, 
And the question that I have, what is the difference between getting the subsidy for your kids' education or getting the subsidy for your clothing allowance, your speaking lessons, or whatever else they get subsidized for that, and and all of the above, that when when some, um, you know, a person who is not wealthy in some little town gives 25 bucks, I don't think... They want their money to go to either of those things. Well, let me just address that yeah. as well. But but on the issue of Stephen Harper, I think that you know when it came to the leadership, he was. I think he was very fine with with Andrew Shear. I'm sure he, like every every other conservative, was disappointed at the fact that we didn't win, without a doubt. But 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't read anything into into people like Corey and others who are who are Corey tonight t- Corey tonight and others who uh, were very publicly speaking against the leader and trying to get him to resign early on, uh, even though they all worked for Stephen Harper. A lot of them do, and a lot of folks actually went through. Stephen Harper's office. After 10 years, you can imagine there's a lot of staffing that, that he did and, and changed and turnover. But I wouldn't read the fact that they were once former Stephen Harper staffers. Some of them are current Doug Ford uh, staffers or, or advisors as well. So I wouldn't say that Doug Ford was, was into this as well. But, but nonetheless, I think that the issue with, with the private school, um, every party engages in topping up their leader's uh, you know, salary, in yeah. case, especially when they're in opposition, when the salary isn't as much as it is when you become prime minister. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the common case with respect to Jagmeet Singh, he didn't have a seat for two years or two or three years of his first term, and the party basically gave him a salary to, to keep him going. So it's not unusual for, for the fund to be able to say, we're going to give you a top end to your... To your um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So the difference is whether or not the fund knew that of the whatever that amount is given to the leader was going to go to the leader for the leader to decide where he wanted to go, whether it was a, tr- a clothing allowance, whether it was a top up to rental, whatever, because renting in Ottawa was far more expensive than it was in Saskatchewan, uh, or whether or not it was a top off to, to his private school, which apparently it was. There, there was a differential, according to the executive director of the party, said that, look, the, 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 he was in, he was, kids were in private school in Saskatchewan, and to move them to Ottawa was a higher cost, so we, we topped it up from that perspective. That's the, the debate that the fund didn't know about that, and that's why they're upset. I, I still don't get what the difference is. Well, and, and I think the, the, the issue for the party remains, what do they stand for? And this notion that Andrew Scheer alone was responsible for the social conservative wing of the party, I think um, underrepresents how strong the social conservative part of the party is. And so... Um, to say that, you know, it, because Andrew Scheer didn't walk in a parade, that's why they lost. Andrew Scheer was probably representing a large wing of the party in so doing. So I, I think the party has to do some soul searching. And they're talking about Rona Ambrose and Peter McKay because they seem to be nice, moderate people that could lead the party. But, but they both left politics for reasons that were, that they're, they've moved on to new lives. And so, um, and, and again, back to this this notion that there's a Jesus out there that's going to save the party. It just doesn't happen. So the party has to do some work between now and the next leadership convention to understand what does it stand for, because that that's going to drive, I think, who is successfully going to take over the helm. Okay. I want to give the numbers out again, because I want to know what people think. Uh, are they socially conservative or are they more centrist? I mean, that that's been the whole tension since the two conservative parties of course, merged. So what do you think? And and should Andrew Scheer have been taking all this flack for getting a top-up? The number's to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I am here with our strategy panel. We're going to be here for the whole hour. And before we move on to another topic, I, I really have to get this conservative thing 
nailed down. I mean, we've seen also in the provincial race where social conservatives had a big role and perhaps a role that is outsized compared to their actual numbers. So is is that what people in the center want to put an end to? Uh, no, I wouldn't say put an end to, quite frankly, and they shouldn't put an end to it. You know, the social conservatives um, are as much a member of the conservative party as anybody else. We believe in big tent, uh, and it's just, just not just a saying, it's, it's a reality in the sense that there's room for everybody that believes in fiscal responsibility, believes in individual rights, believes in smaller government, believes that money is better spent by the individual than by government. The conservative values that make up the conservative party um, from a fiscal perspective is far broader than the those who believe in social conservatism or believe that, you know, that that uh, there's no room for, for those who are, are gay in the party or vice versa. I think the key thing is that the party has become much more centrist and, and the province has become much more centrist. In fact, Canada has become much more centrist. So the issue of the far fringes, either or the far left, uh, you know, in, in, or the far right, no longer have, have any room with respect to the electorate when it comes to the election. So political parties tend to, tend to pick their leaders based on the fact that who's the most appealing to whatever the voter base is, if it's Canadian or if it's a provincial one. And in our in our case, I think people felt that Andrew Scheer was too far on one side of the issue. Um, but it's not to say that there's no voice or no no reason for those to be uh, to be involved in the p- political party. But when it comes to the leadership of the party, that's where I think the the matter uh, the matter is the most. And and most 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 conservatives feel that Andrew Scheer was one way, so now they're going to pivot to the other, which is why people like Ron Ambrose and Peter McKay and others their names are coming up because they're much more moderate. Well, I think nobody's discussed this, Charles, but I I think there's also a question of likability, charisma. I mean, you know, he wasn't a guy that was going to set the world on fire. No, that is is most certainly true. He um, had what I think a lot of people say in retrospect was a terrible campaign, despite growing the size of his caucus to record opposition numbers, increasing the size of his caucus by more than than 20 seats. Um, as I've said before, the last 72 hours of uh, the Conservative campaign uh, in October was an unmitigated disaster and, and cost them, uh, I think, a great many seats. But I also agree with, with Karen. Um, the, the conservatism is facing a very, very fundamental self-identity challenge, um, both here in Canada and elsewhere. I mean, the conservatism that we grew up with was really rooted in, um, you know, smaller government, lower taxes, belief in the free market. Um, it's now wrestling with a a variety of contending forces, whether it's social issues, whether it's, um, you know, acceptance of same-sex marriage or a woman's right to choose. Um, It's also uh, in the United States, and I think we'll see more of this here, uh, a a very strong anti-immigrant flavor, which the People's Party and Maxime Bernier tried to uh, capitalize on. Fortunately, they were unsuccessful to the credit of Canadians. But um, the the country has, has changed a lot. It has moved on, especially with regards to some really important social issues. And there are big, big chunks of the Conservative Party that have not moved on. And Stephen Harper was able to sort of use an iron fist to to keep those forces under control. Um, I think Andrew Scheer was ultimately overtaken by those forces. Well, I I think that being from Ontario, we might have a different view than perhaps those at West have a view about conservatism and what it means for them. And so I, I, I don't 
you know, John, I like to think that we've moved on, but I, I still think that there's a large part of the Conservative Party that's very focused on social conservatism. And even when uh, Doug Ford got elected, one of his key action items was to revisit the, um, the sex ed curriculum in the schools, which, you know, if you... He basically, I mean, he, he got the support of social conservatives. Correct. And, um, and let's just say he, and I don't <laughs> he think betrayed he, them. He, yeah. and, but I don't think he did any favors to the provincial curriculum by, by pandering to that group. But th- nonetheless... He didn't do anything to the curriculum. The curriculum is basically what it was. What it was before. Before. It, before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, it's, uh, so I, I think that it's, although, we, you know, the centrists in the room would like to think that we, are, as, as a country, have moved more towards the middle. I'm not sure that's actually the case in all parts of the country. Okay, let me give the numbers out again. What do you think? What should the next conservative leader look like, be? What should the ideology be? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. There's a new poll out that say most people, conservatives or not, favor Ronna Ambrose. By the way, Charles, uh, is Justin Trudeau going to try to scoop her and give, <laughs> make her ambassador to the United States? Uh, there are some people who think that's a very, very good idea, that it would be a positive signal to Western Canada to have someone of her capabilities. Um, there's a more cynical view that it would also be a good way to make sure she didn't become leader. Of <laughs> yeah. the, uh, I think the latter more than the former, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but... Um, uh, Ms. Ambrose has has some issues. When she was Minister of the Environment under Stephen Harper, she was uh, fairly notorious in her, um, I won't say outright denials of climate change, but certainly didn't give the issue the kind of priority that it uh, deserved. Um, I think that may come back to haunt her over the longer term. Part of the problem is that in the absence of Rona Ambrose and in the absence of Peter McKay, who are sort of party luminaries and, 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 and uh, sort of in a in a league by themselves, the Conservatives are really facing the same situation they did when they elected Andrew Scheer, which is a whole bunch of uh, people like Aaron O'Toole, who, you know, with all due respect, are just not that impressive, and who don't necessarily have the wherewithal to lead the party. And I think Andrew Scheer fit into that category. I mean, people found him uninspiring, unexciting. And uh, so that's another big problem for the Conservatives if, if the big names do drop out. Well, I remember I remember a certain name by the by, by the name of Michael Ignatieff, who at the <laughs> yeah, time was was was, a, yeah. was the Messiah who yeah. was going to save the save the Liberal Party, and and you know not only did that Liberal luminaries go to the U.S. in fact to Harvard to try yeah. to recruit him, they recruited him, brought him to Canada, uh, and uh, and and Michael was the guy that was supposed to be the savior. So you know I think all parties face those kinds of issues when when they face an election loss and they're they're, they're self reflecting as to what went wrong, what 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 worked what didn't work uh, I think the, this part our party is a no difference uh, you know we were ten, 10 years in power under Stephen Harper uh, and I remember when Stephen Harper won the leadership you know back in 2004 when the two, when the two parties merged there was a lot of Canadians who weren't sure about him I remember I was, I was a candidate in 2004 going to the doors and, and as there were in 2015 right. well who, who basically said yeah. you know they don't know Stephen Harper they're not sure about him they think he's too much of a reformer and then in 2006 he won a minority and then of course the rest is history he became uh, he became a, a fairly good prime minister of this country 
Um, so you, you never know what's going to happen. But I think our party is in that position where we picked Andrew Shearer. It was a tight race of 13 candidates. He ended up winning by slim uh, minority uh, of the uh, majority of, of the, of who the delegates. Beat? Who did he beat again? I forgot. Who yeah, beat Maxine Bernier, Bernier. Bernier. Who, who went on and the party made the right decision at the time. That's right. right? Small yeah. mercies, right? Small yeah. mercies. And then he went off to be his thing. And of course, the Canadians did the right thing by not electing anybody from the People's Party, including Maxine Bernier. But but I think at this stage of the game, we've got, and we're, we're, the party is going to be self-reflecting. We've got a policy conference in, in uh, April, which was going to be a leadership review process, and that's no longer there. But there's going to be a lot of policy discussions between now and then. And it might be the leadership. Uh, well, and it yeah. could be the leadership. It might, I, I, I strongly doubt it'll be a leadership, but it could very well be the leadership. Here, here's, this, is, this is my brother Moses' theory. And he says that the system of voting, which is very complicated, the conservative system of voting that weights certain areas differently. And I mean, who knows? It's it's a complicated thing with ranking. It's it's like a a wacky form of proportional representation. That's the way I'd characterize it. He said that that will always yield, never yield the top guy, but always yield the the compromise or the second best or something like that. Well, let, let me speak to that because I think the system that we adopted, and that was basically, we gave away or did away with the delegated system which was basically that the writings were able to pick, say, 15 to 20 you know, mostly party stalwarts uh, to go to a convention and those 15 or 20 people across the province or across the country, depending on what the leadership race was, were the ones that were dedicated or delegated to pick the leader. Uh, I personally love that system. It was a great system. I went to every convention at the time. But then the parties merged and one of the deals was that we opened up to a one-member, one-vote, which is to say anybody who wants to be, who holds a conservative membership card gets to vote for their leadership, uh, for their leader. So what they did, which I thought was quite smart, was they weighted it so that every Every riding was allowed 100 points so that if, if a riding in Alberta had 50,000 members, right, and a riding in downtown Toronto had 50 members, that, that it wouldn't be controlled by one province because of the fact that they were much more able to get members uh, to, to sign up. So that the, the, the riding in Alberta that had the 50,000 members and the riding in downtown Toronto that had 50 were weighted the same so that leaders, when they went to campaign, would spend as much time in the riding in downtown Toronto as they would in the riding in, in Alberta. So it actually was more of a fairer system, to be honest with but you. But it's by, well, is he wrong then? Well, I, I, you know, if it was a pure one member one vote, where you know we saw Jagmeet Singh as an example in the NDP, his his leadership was was pure one member one vote system, and he won the leadership based on seven or eight ridings across Canada that had the majority mm-hmm. of the members that, that elected him as leader. Now, was that a wrong system? Not saying that it is or not, but I think our system allows for the leaders to be able to spend as much time in those those you know ridings that don't have as many members as the ones that have. Hundreds and thousands of members. Okay, let's take a call from Donna in Guelph. Hi, Don. It's Donna. Hi, Donna. Hi. Hi, Libby. Um, yes, I'm a social conservative. And um, if the conservative government sways from the um, uh, that thinking um, and goes for the LGBTQ and abortion, I will not be voting. Period. Uh- yeah, well, there wouldn't be uh, if they if they uh, so uh, so you want want it to stay socially conservative. The party that is, it's not the government. Yes, that's what that's what the party. I want them to stay as as social conservative. 
Okay, Don. Okay, thank, thank you. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. We've just spent the first half hour talking about the conservative leadership, Ronna Ambrose, Peter McKay, all the reasons Andrew Shear couldn't hang on to his job, and um, whether the conservatives are going to be socially conservative or will they be more moderate going forward so they can maybe win in Ontario and Quebec. So let's talk about the Liberal leadership. Haven't heard too much about it. There is a field of candidates, but what I hear from all the insiders is that the former transport minister, Stephen Del Duca, totally has a lock on it. And maybe that's why he's kind of a bit under the radar. He doesn't have to deal with the public, just with the Liberals who will elect him. Right, Charles? Yeah, that's the way the process worked. And it worked very well for Justin Trudeau, in fact, when he ran for the federal liberal leadership, when the liberals were in third place and had no chance of winning the, the next election. And so there is a, there is a bit of a under the radar uh, or below the radar uh, quality to it. But what's, what's really important about the process is that, you know, making the jump to being a prospective leader of a party, I mean, it's, it's a big psychological jump and a leadership process that's taken seriously allows candidates to go out and learn their craft and listen to Ontarians, not just Liberals, but Ontarians right across the province. And that's exactly what um, Stephen Del Duca and the other Liberal leadership candidates are doing. I mean, they are meeting with groups of two, three, four people at a time in a lot of cases and that's a great, great hands-on experience and will give you a much better understanding of the the province and what's important to Ontarians than anything else. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but, you know, the, the, the prize that awaits the, 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 the victory in the Liberal leadership race in Ontario, I mean, that person will probably say, well, I've won now. When do I get to move into my office? And it'd be like, um, well, uh, there, yeah. there isn't an office, office. actually uh, until you manage to get yourself elected to the legislature. And By the way, here's our debt you need to pay off. And, <laughs> exactly. And, until you raise the money for, for, for rent. Uh, John, so if if they do elect Stephen Del Duca, who's the front runner, is is he going to be their Andrew Shear? Well, their Mr. Leader, personality. Their leadership is a bit of a nothing burger. <laughs> to use that, to use that famous <laughs> oh, phrase. Oh, that's cruel. <laughs> um, only because of the fact that it's not getting the attention that it probably deserves uh, and should, as as the, as a former government. But obviously, they're in third place now and 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 not getting much attention at all. But um, you know, I can only name three. I think there's five or six that are running. But I can name obviously Missy Hunter and and um, and and former Minister Coteau and yeah. of course Stephen Del Duca. Well, Karen's running. Did you not hear? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know that would have been a story. Oh, and then What's of course, the name it would of the been. guy who wants to abolish the Catholic school board? Um, Tejo? Uh, Al- Tejo, oh. I think his okay. name yeah. is. Alvin. Alvin, Alvin or something. Yeah. But Tejo. nonetheless, okay. I, think, I think the fact that we're having that debate itself is, is, is in and of itself. And I think, but it's a challenge, though, and I, and I suspect the fact that, and I actually know Stephen Del Duke, and I quite like him. I've had uh, many uh, very positive exchanges over the course of the many years when he was minister and, and even when he wasn't. Um, but it looks like it's a runaway show. It looks like he's going to win this based on the memberships that he signed up. And so as this, as this convention creeps up in 2020, which I believe is in the first quarter of, of 2020, March, March I think, that's right. March. Um, he'll likely win this on the first ballot, so there's not going to be much of a story. There's not going to be much of a, of a fanfare that the Liberals need in order to get themselves charged and re-energized. Um, so whether or not Stephen Duca has the personality or not, I think the Liberals in leadership contests are an opportunity for the party, including ours that's coming up and mm-hmm. whenever that is federally, but also for the Liberals to be able to get that extra media, uh, um, you know, 
earned kind of coverage so that they can go on and, and get that a bit of a bump. Uh, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. Uh, people out there, are you paying any attention at all to the liberal leadership? And, and are you anywhere near the point where you might want to vote liberal again? Because the numbers show they were trounced and presumably for good reasons and 15 years of baggage. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. I am here with our strategy panel. And uh, we've shifted from the conservative leadership to the liberal leadership, anything you want to say about that, Karen? No, other than I think. Are that, you running? No, no, I'm not running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just to, for all those who think I might be. Uh, no, uh, I, I do. Think, I didn't hear that rumor. No. <laughs> just sign here. Yeah, just sign here. Yeah, no, I, I think that the conservative. I thought you were a conservative. <laughs> I've been a card-carrying member of the Conservative Party for years. So, uh, you know, no. So I think that the leadership for the Conservative Convention is, is going to be a mess because they're still, they're still creating controversies for themselves. Um, and then the Liberals, I think, to the point that we've talked about, it's such a sleeper right now. Nobody even knows what's going on. So hopefully they can uh, gain some momentum in the new year because the party, in order to rebuild itself to party status, needs to do quite a bit of work. Okay. Uh, yesterday we had fall economic statement and surprise surprise the liberal deficits are going to be a lot higher than they projected so instead of uh, 19.8 billion for this year it's 26.6 and next year uh it's going to be 28 28.1 28.1 thank you for that Uh, and uh meanwhile the finance ministers are all meeting to see how they can get more money out of the federal government but you know there's no money they're giving us a tax cut or a middle, a, a, quote, middle class tax cut that, that, that doesn't get fully clawed back till you make well over 200000 net. <laughs> so. Well, th- so this is the issue. And I think that, you know, the provinces might as well ask for more money because obviously the, fe- the federal liberals are, are giving more money away. And, and so why not ask for it if they're giving it away? But, but, al- but they're asking for money for very important reasons. Obviously, the health transfer payments yeah. and, and some of those issues, infrastructure money that a lot of the, the federal liberals actually promised in the last election campaign, not, not only in the 2015 election campaign, but the more recent ca- campaign, they promised more money, more funding for infrastructure uh, and for health care. And also, I think the key issue here is going to be the equalization, and the whole, the whole equalization formula. Yep. The yeah. fact that, uh, that Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, uh, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, and, and including our, you know, Ontario Premier Doug Ford have all been asking for that equalization formula to be readjusted, uh, given the imbalance that they feel that, that that's been going on over the last number of years. So it's going to be Gotta a lot of tricky issues. elect more liberals for that. But I, but I think, though, what's going to be important here, though, Libby, is that you know this issue of the liberals not caring about balanced balanced books, even though the Liberals will say, well, it's not an issue. It wasn't an issue in 2015. It wasn't an issue last year. It's going to be an issue this time around because I'll tell you, the, the U.S. economy is far exceeding ours. Yeah. Like, I think I think they're 50% more, their economy is stronger than ours in some cases. Their, their unemployment is way below ours. And and once people start realizing that the economy is slowing down and that jobs are being lost, if not theirs, their neighbors, that's when people are going to start focusing on this and they're going to start asking tough questions of the Liberal government. Well, exactly. Why aren't we? Let's let's take a call from Richard in Wheatley. Hi, Richard. Hi. I was wondering why no one has brought up John Bayard's name. He has the right temperament to run the country. Plus, he knows the numbers. 
John? Well, yeah, listen, uh, John Baird is a great name and a great person who uh, was one of the most successful ministers in Stephen Harper's uh, uh, government, not least of which, of course, is successful in Mike Harris's government when he was yeah. Premier in Ontario. So somebody who's well-known, who's out there. He was who a minister often, when he was about 12. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and worked for, I think, Perrin Beatty, but when Perrin Beatty was a minister. So knows politics and has done extremely well and successful. Uh, cer- certainly his name has been mentioned. I know his name is somebody that uh, a lot of people would support and consider. I haven't heard much from John himself based on that, but John keeps getting tasked to fix things. As, as well, more recently, he was... We need someone that's, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe a little more like Trump. Well, I don't know that he's anything like Trump, um, and maybe that's a good thing. I think John would probably say that he's not anything like Donald Trump. uh, Well, I understand that, but he's, he's, he's decisive. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sure. But he likes his life. Like he's Thanks. got a great life now after politics. Yeah. Thank and you for your call, Richard. Appreciate it. Uh, he's the guy who's tasked with figuring out what's went wrong. And and among the reports, not to get, was that there was there was some very harsh news for Andrew Shear in what he found, though we haven't seen what he found, and, and I don't don't know that that is going to become public at any point. Well, as far as the report, there's people talking about it making the report public, or to yeah. at least to the party members, yeah. which of course would be public. Um, but so we're not sure how that's going to play out. But I think most party members, certainly most most party members, I'd say, as opposed to Canadians, would know what went wrong as far as some of the some of the missteps and, and issues that that took place over the election campaign. Um, that report was more just to confirm the fact that a lot of folks that were conservatives felt that was what the issue was. But John Baird's name is certainly somebody that would be mentioned and, and could be mentioned down the road. Well, uh, presumably we haven't heard it because maybe he's not interested. That's well, or that he's yeah. busy doing this report. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... Uh, so We've just heard from John that the the deficit may be more of an issue than it is now, and clearly this government doesn't care. Uh, And we have Christian Freeland as the minister of everything. There's all kinds of speculation about what that means, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau going on vacation. But, you know, maybe she's just a good COO, chief operating officer for the whole government. Uh, How do you see that, Charles? Is she the next one in waiting or what? Um. It's it's a complicated dynamic within the cabinet because traditionally it's the Minister of Finance who has chief responsibility for issues like equalization, but clearly Minister Freeland has, in her new capacity, um, had conversations with Western Premiers, including Jason Kenney, with regards to uh, fiscal stabilization and lifting the cap, which, for all sorts of reasons we won't get into, is very, very difficult. But it, it sounds like... Um, they have already come to some sort of agreement that would see some sort of equalization rebate uh, paid out to Alberta, um, which would solve a great many issues and may explain why Jason Kenney has been uh, surprisingly positive and optimistic with regards to his dealings with the federal government since the election. So I guess we will have to see. Yeah, you know, Bill Morneau, he's a a good finance minister. He's got the support of Bay Street, but um, Chris, Chris... yeah, Freelander. Freeland. Free. She's a much better politician. There's no question. I mean, whether you agree with her politics or not, um, she is effective in getting things done that she wants to get done. So I, I don't. It's not surprising that she's in the role because there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of bringing the country together. And quite frankly, I just don't think Bill Morneau could do that. Uh, so of all the cabinet members, I think she's demonstrated herself to be the most competent and someone who's most likely to deliver. 
Well, and I think every government sort of finds or kind of gravitates to a fixer, another mm-hmm. somebody who actually yeah. is becomes the minister of all things. I remember Brian Mulroney had Dan Mas- Don Mazakowski as that fixer, and and Stephen Harper had John Baird, as we as for, they aforementioned John Baird, who was the one that kind of fixed all the issues or was the go-to whenever there was a problem uh, within the legislature. And I think Chrisa Freeland has become has become that that minister where the confidence in in her abilities to be able to get things fixed and get things done um, far outweigh some of the other issues that may that may may, may blog her down. But uh, I, I think that you know she's going to be someone who her challenge is going to be not notwithstanding the fact that the the, the USMCA deal has now been done is going to be the interprovincial issues yeah. that are happening across Canada and mostly with the fact that you know the West and how how the West feels and how she can broker that that is a tough challenge for her. Okay, let's shift a bit to the province. We saw a kinder, gentler Doug Ford, but just yesterday they cancelled a a project that the Liberals had approved in Hamilton for an LRT, a billion dollars, and Carolyn Mulrooney delivered that news, and of course, people a lot of people in Hamilton are not happy, though I do gather there are people who did not want an LRT. So, uh, does this put a damper on Carolyn Mulrooney's career, and what, what does it mean? No, I don't think so. I think it's just the normal, you know, course of being a minister uh, uh, in, a, in the largest province in, in Canada, and some of the challenges faced when you had 15 years of a liberal mismanagement, you know, in, in fiscal matters, uh, you know, coming into this, where where the, the deficit was way bigger, and, and the debt was way bigger than it should have been, and I think the Premier has been trying for the last year, certainly, but, but continues to try to rein in some of those controls. You're seeing it with the school uh, trustees and the school boards and, and whatnot, and, and of course infrastructure, transportation is another one. This, this is a challenge, I think, with this particular issue, and that is it was budgeted, and, and the previous Liberal government and, and for, Doug Ford agreed with it, which is to say there was a billion dollars that was dedicated to this LRT. After much study and much more re- review, it actually ended up being much more, much more expensive. So there's a point in time where I think as a government you have to say, you know what, it's a tough decision to make, but we can't afford to go beyond that. You still have a billion dollars to put towards your infrastructure and transportation, but this particular project can't go on if it's going to cost three to five point billion, five billion dollars. But, but I still think there's a way that you do these things. You don't just come into a press conference or come to a meeting and catch everyone off guard and say, oh, by the way, we're canceling your major project that you've invested all this time and energy and resources in. And, you know, if, if there's a gap in funding, then you talk about the gap in funding and say, you know, we're committed to this project. We only can fund it for this. How are we going to get the, 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 the difference in order to have this go? And then fundamentally, if the project can't go, it's not because you've canceled it, it's just because you weren't able to find the money. But this was just, it just felt like the rug had been pulled out from underneath the the, the You know, the you leaders. should be advising them, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> the leaders of Hamilton. <laughs> that, that one and, well, Karen knows better. a lot about transportation. Well, and, and, and I think it will come back to haunt them because it will be, okay, well, why do you have all the money in the world and the federal commitment to build everything for Toronto? And yet Hamilton, a distressed city, needs the investment, needs the transit. They Hamilton is getting very cool. Yeah. It's not that distressed. I mean, it's gentrified and, well, getting there. Not yeah. that cool if you're the Doug Ford government. Well, not that cool yeah. if you're the, the Doug the Ford electoral, government. The electoral but, map of Hamilton yeah, but has I, four but I, provincial ridings, all of which are NDP. Yeah, right. But what happened yesterday was not a good day for Minister Mulroney. I mean, she went. She she had to have the event cancelled because word mm-hmm. leaked out of what the Conservatives were doing. And lo and behold, all the pro-LRT people... Um, showed up to greet her, and uh, so she had. <laughs> Wasn't a pro- Gord 
approach there? She had a private <laughs> meeting with uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, and uh, and he was quoted as saying, this is a betrayal by the province to the city of Hamilton. This will not only hurt Hamilton's economy, but Ontario's yeah. economy. The, West, the message to the world is that Ontario is an unreliable partner, quote-unquote. So yep. that's, mm-hmm. that's well, not a good day for the Conservative government. Okay, so just before John jumps in here... Here's what really bugs me, and it's all governments do this. They spend a fortune and then decide, gee, maybe that's not the right thing to do. So in this case, it was $180 million already spent, plus $80 million uh, expropriating people, I think. Mm-hmm. That's just one. Now, Ford government ran on this, but it was $231 million to cancel some green energy program. And it goes on and on and on and on. And I am sure that none of those people who do this and none of us in this room run our household budgets like that because we'd be completely broke. Well, when you're talking about that kind of money, but I think that you have to spend some money to be able to find out if something is viable or not. And I, you see it with the city governments, uh, specifically the city of Toronto, where they're, they engage in something where they have to do a study or they have to actually sort of see what is involved to sort of see if this thing is going to be viable or not down the road. So there's always going to be some level of, of money spent. You, the, you know, the, the trick obviously is for a government to spend as much as less as possible doing the studying, uh, but yeah, make the no, decision. I'm talking about when they've studied, mm-hmm. they say we're going ahead and then they cancel. Right. And I think in this case, there was the thought of, you know, that extra two or three billion dollars more that that they ended up finding out it was going to cost was too much of a risk. So they were prepared to say, look, we can't go with that project. You're still going to get your billion dollars. That was promised to you in the budget. You're going to get that. And that's a lot of money to fix something within Hamilton. But this particular project, that two or three million dollars or four billion billion dollars can go somewhere else. And I think that's what the decision that they made and they're prepared obviously to, to, to risk it and fight it. Charles? Oh, um, I mean that billion dollars will probably be expent on Go Go Transit. I mean the, the underlying thesis of this among some conservatives that I've talked to is that the best thing we can do for Hamilton is link them more closely to the economy of Toronto and that says that money is going to go transit and if that money goes to go transit Hamilton will see next to none or none of it mm-hmm. and that's that's a big problem politically. Well, and in Hamilton, I think you were mentioning too, Libby, as far as it's getting much more um, gentrified, you know, with, with some of the it's, the housing is getting more I think it's robust getting to and, the point where people can't even afford a house in Hamilton now. But, but everything has been going west, right? You yeah. saw that with, yeah. with you know, when you when you start moving west, that's why there's the greater Toronto health, you know, Hamilton as, as area, right? It's now such a bigger, broader swath of, of uh, the economy that, that makes sense to, to tie it in. I think and, they need a yeah. real CFL football team, Hamilton. Yes. Or one that can win the Great Cup. the Great Cup. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. Julius, you still want to talk about Andrew Shear? Oh, yes, if, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, um, I, I, in my view, I found uh, Andrew Shear quite a decent fellow, uh, the way he uh, sold himself. Uh, but I, I like to reiterate the fact that he, he gained how many seats? 20, and, uh, 22 uh, seats, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't that be called a victory? Yeah. He tried to. And what about, <laughs> what about the fact he took Trudeau down from a 
majority to a minority, wouldn't that be a victory? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and Julius, to your very good point, uh, I think a lot of folks, including the leader himself on election night, basically said that. He claimed victory by saying that he's, the party is now 22 plus seats richer. The the popular vote actually increased uh, and um, uh, than, than it did before. So those are both very... Uh, successful outcomes. Yes. I think the challenge was that they were they were kind of s- segregated or focused in in Alberta and Saskatchewan only. Um, and 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 the, and again, it was it was an expectation game too, Julius. The fact that the party and and folks believed that that he should have won, and the party themselves basically said that they were going to win near the end. And I think that's what caused a lot of the discomfort. Also, uh, let's not forget uh, he got more. I understand he got more popular votes. He did, he did. Yep. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, now, so in other words, had, had it not been for the GTA voter, he'd be prime minister. Well, in fact, if if those twenty two seats, well, if those yeah. twenty two seats and the popular vote ended up being part of in Ontario and in Quebec, he would have been prime minister. There you go. And and the, and but the they two, weren't. And would they not weren't. Be. Yeah. Julius, thanks so much for your call. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, we have not talked about the coming property tax increase <laughs> to Toronto. Uh, a special levy. John Tory, who promised, made a solemn vow not to raise property taxes. It's uh, going to be eight percent over six years, Karen. Yeah, it's it's um, you know it's a bit of a risky move, and uh, you know th- there's no question that council's going to approve it. So I don't think the issue is going to be getting it through council. I think the issue is going to be at the end of his term, convincing people that the investment is going is a worthwhile investment. And uh, we know we've talked about it. Property taxes don't, don't consider income. They um, and many people on a fixed income uh, may find this hard to absorb, and many people that are house poor might find this hard to absorb. So it's just going to—it's a calculated risk. And do you, do you think it signals that maybe he really doesn't want a third term? I, I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I actually think he does want a third term, and I think what he's coming up is the pressure of having promised a lot and having to, now to deliver on it. And the the gap between what he has promised and how he can fund it uh, is is coming. John to rear would know ugly more head. about that. Well, no, I think it's obviously it is a risky move, and I think it's something that obviously he and his team believe that needed to happen. And and I think you know the mayor's tried, uh, and he's mentioned this even in his during his first term about a dedicated fund that is to be to, for for infrastructure and for uh, and for those kinds of projects. Um, you know the the big risk and and the concern I think that that Torontonians have whenever there's a tax increase or a property tax increase of any sort is that it gets into general revenue and then it just gets squandered away by all sorts of you know projects that mean nothing to them or they don't see the value in it. I think the success of this property tax and the success of John Tory doing it is that if it's if it's dedicated as he says it's going to be dedicated and, and, and Torontonians actually see the benefit of that where you know they'll say hey the money that we raised is going to this road or this structure or this particular project and it's benefiting Torontonians I think they'll give a pass on that but any tax you know is not going to go well with with uh, anyone quite is he going to go for a third term well i don't know i think it's still early to tell i think that he's obviously leaving his options open um a lot of people might wish that he does uh who knows but it's still i think what year two in his term mm-hmm. yeah charles um you know i think this this is the kind of move that you can only do as mayor if you are very popular um, he has a lot of political capital built up. He's obviously willing to, to spend what could end up being a very large chunk of it on what he sees as a, a really essential uh, going forward proposition. Um, it, 
the, all of the money in question will be spent on transit and affordable housing. And in fact, City Council is voting on a, a 10-year affordable housing plan today in tandem with the, uh, with the discussion over the, the tax hike. And, but the, the, really, the, the, bigger, the bigger piece of all this is that the additional levy will allow the City of Toronto to borrow an additional $6.6 billion. I mean, that's, that's a lot of zeros. And it speaks to just the amount of work that the city needs in terms of uh, in terms of transit infrastructure, okay. and then you combine that with what the Toronto Police Services, uh, you know, th- their budget increase, and you just see a city that's under strain, and and someone's got to pay for it. Okay, we have a minute left, twenty seconds each. What are we going to be talking about when we reconvene in twenty twenty? Starting with John, uh, the Conservative leadership, the Liberal <laughs> leadership, <laughs> uh, from a lot of leadership conventions happening in twenty twenty, which are going to be obviously profound for the Liberals' perspective, uh, the new Liberal leader, uh, and then obviously for the Conservatives, if we're going to have a, our, our leadership convention in twenty twenty or not. Care well, and I, I think there's still a simmering issue around uh, the the teachers and whether the teachers are going to strike a deal with the province and how that unfolds because now we're into a holiday period, no one's paying attention, but the issues haven't, they haven't gone away. No, and they certainly <laughs> haven't. Another strike tomorrow. That's right. And so I, I think that we will spend some time talking about that in the new year as well. Charles? Um, the impeachment of Donald J. Trump through the month of January, followed by Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada and the 2020 presidential race, which will cast a very, very long shadow over Canadian politics and I think could um, impact the degree to which the Conservatives find you know, some of those issues like immigration, um, like populism, compelling in terms of their selection of a new leader. Okay, well, and we'll make us all grateful that we are Canadian. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll see you again back here on Fight Back in 2020. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.